Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. My prayer for us over these past two or three years has been that God may seem to us bigger and God may seem to us nearer. That we may have eyes to see God as he really is. That is the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. It's important we learn to ask because we have not, because we ask not. It's important to learn to cultivate imagination because that is well as God-given. I can imagine here families within our church being out of debt. I can imagine families here staying out of debt. Now, for some, that's a lot to imagine, right? A lot to ask for. I can imagine our church being out of debt and staying out of debt. I can imagine us finishing these unfinished spaces. I can imagine here on a Wednesday night at church, our kitchen being finished. It's about 6 o'clock and families are gathering. You know, that's what families do. They gather. And we're having dinner together. Sitting at the table, just lingering in each other's presence, visiting with each other, maybe discipling one another. And then the classrooms have been built out so we can have a men's study and a women's study. Right now we can only have one or the other. And the youth space upstairs is built with a large room and breakout space for discipleship. Maybe a built-in coffee, drink bar. And the Family Life Center here has undergone a great transformation. And the salaries of the staff have been restored. And the staff said, Amen. <laughs> and what was being spent on debt has been re- now being spent on ministry. And discipleship is happening at every generation. Matthew chapter 17, if you have a Bible, encourages me when you open them. Matthew 17. We're going to be looking today at Matthew 17 and 1 Kings 17. So the 17s are in this sermon. Unfortunately, the sermon won't last 17 minutes, but we'll do our best. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured or transformed before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Six days later, Jesus never treated Christianity like an audit course. You know, in college or in graduate schools, when you take a class for credit or for audit, there's a major difference. When you take a class for credit, you show up most every class for the lecture, and you dig into the material, and you do your required readings as well as your other readings and you do your homework, and you take the test, and you engage in the course. If somebody were to ask you, in a required course, what are you learning? You could give a very good answer, because your heart is in it. On the other hand, when you audit a course, you can come or not come. You can throw the frisbee, if you like, in the afternoon. You can do your homework or not do your homework and not take the test. You can get all the information without taking any responsibility. You aren't really engaged. If somebody were to ask you in an audit class, what are you learning? You might not have a very good answer. Now Jesus, the context of this, Matthew 16 is, 
he gave a test to his disciples. He said, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Jeremiah or Isaiah, one of the prophets. He said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. And upon this confession, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And then he said, if any man wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. For I must go up to Jerusalem, and there I must suffer at the hands of the elders and scribes and Pharisees. And there I must be crucified, and on the third day rise again. But the Son of Man will return with glory to this earth with his angels. Jesus was talking about suffering and also with glory. The sermon begins on a mountain. Jesus led them up on a mountain. Our journey here as a church also begins on a mountain. If you didn't know it, you're sitting on the edge of Braddock Mountain. Braddock was one of the generals in the Revolutionary War. I happen to live in the valley down below, about three miles away. But Jesus often slipped away to the mountain. This time he takes three of his disciples, James, John, and Peter, with him to the mountain to pray. There on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured or transformed before them. His countenance, his appearance had changed. His face began to shine like the sun. The garments on him began to become white like a flash of lightning. And his whole being began to radiate glory. You say, what was happening, Pastor R, on the mountain? The simple answer was that Jesus was showing to his disciples his glory. You see, Jesus had always been glorious. His prayer just before the cross was, Father, now glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. John was so captured by a vision of God's glory that he said the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. To behold the glory of the Lord. It's a word I often use when I see a cherry tree in blossom. There's that cherry blossom in all its glory. There's that azalea bush in all her glory. There's a beautiful, glorious sunrise or sunset. You see, the beauty of the cherry blossom showcases the glory of God. Its beauty is so stunning, it creates within us all in wonder. And Peter, writing this book of 2 Peter, said of this transfiguration, we were eyewitnesses of God's glory when Jesus received glory and honor from his Father on that sacred mountain. So why did Jesus appear with Moses and with Elijah? We know that Moses was the one who went up on Mount Sinai to receive the law of God, the two tablets, and came down with those ten commandments. And we know that Elijah was the greatest of all the prophets. And now one greater than Moses, one greater than Elijah was here, even Jesus Christ himself. Elijah's life was a journey of faith. There was a stirring inside of his soul when King Ahab and Jezebel sat upon the throne. He appeared before Ahab and he said, As surely as the Lord lives, and I am his servant, 
There will be no rain or dew upon this earth except by my word. Elijah was asserting three things. First of all, that God was alive. Secondly, that he was his servant. And third, that God had promised in a day when his people turn to idolatry, he will close the heavens with the rain. Elijah was sent to a little brook called Cherith, and there God took care of him, took care of everything he needed. There were ravens that brought to Elijah his daily provisions. In the morning, there was a raven, and he came with provisions for Elijah. In the evening, there came a raven, and he came with provisions unto Elijah. God took care of him. Now, my apologies to the Baltimore Ravens fans, but ravens were considered to be the least of the birds. Ravens were known to neglect their young. And even in the midst of this drought, perhaps the ravens were chosen because they could fly long distances, bringing to Elijah berries and nuts and fruit to sustain him. And God took care of Elijah. So what's the point? When you take care of God's business, God will take care of your business. God miraculously provided for Elijah. God nourished him every day beside that brook, and then the brook ran dry. And then God sent him north up to a town called Zarephath, and there was a widow in that town with a son. And the widow was gathering up her sticks for her last meal, and Elijah said, give me a drink. Now remember, it's a time of drought. It hasn't rained for a long time. And he asked the woman for a drink of water, and she went to fetch him a drink. And as she went, he said to her, please, and also some bread. He was very thirsty and very hungry. And she said, sir, I only have enough meal in my jar and oil in my jug for my son and I. I'm here to gather sticks to make a fire for our last meal. And Elijah said to her, if you'll only trust in the Lord, the Lord will miraculously provide for you. Give me first this piece of bread and then take care of your son. And during the time of the famine, there was miraculous provision for Elijah, for the widow, and for her son. Never did her jug run dry. Never did her jar run out. God miraculously provided for his children. Elijah learned to trust in the Lord. And so when he had to go against the prophets of Baal and ask the question, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. He was ready because he had learned to trust in God. And so up on this mountain with Jesus, <laughs> Peter has this bright idea. Lord, let me make for you three tabernacles. Now, I don't know if Peter was in the building business or not, but he had this idea that Moses should have a little tabernacle and Elijah should have a little tabernacle and Jesus should have a little tabernacle. What was Peter thinking? Here he was in the presence of the Lord, experiencing the glory of God, and he doesn't want to come down from that mountain. He wants to stay up there in the presence of the Lord and build them some houses. And just then a voice came from heaven, the voice of the Father. The Shekinah glory filled the mountain. And the Father said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, Peter shut up. You're equating Jesus with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is so much higher, so much more preeminent. Listen to him. 
You see, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And Jesus is him who the prophets spoke about come down to earth who would fulfill his mission at the cross. And so they came down from that mountain, chapter 17, verse 14. And when they came, there was a crowd. A crowd had gathered at the foot of the mountain. And there was a man there with a pressing need. And perhaps this morning you've also come with a pressing need. I love how respectful the man is to Jesus, calling him Lord, and kneeling in the presence of Jesus, and making a request to him, Lord, have mercy on my son. When we ask the Lord for his mercy, we're asking him to help us in distressing times. There is something that is distressing us, and the Lord is attuned to our condition, and we're appealing to God to show mercy to us. Lord, have mercy upon my son. I know that the hardest thing for a parent to do is to see your child suffer. To suffer from some disease, to suffer from some injustice, to suffer from some addiction. Parents suffer in their anguish, not knowing where to turn for help. They feel in their souls that something has overtaken control in their children's lives that will kill them unless they are delivered. Here was the father, heart, crying out to Jesus to help him. He has seizures, he says, and is suffering greatly. Now, the Bible is going to distinguish between epilepsy with seizures and this kind of condition, symptomatic of epilepsy, but driven rather by a spirit. He said he has seizures and is suffering very greatly. He often falls into the fire and also into the water. This son had a self-destructive spirit. He would fall into the fire so as to be burned. He would fall into the water so as to be drowned. He also, according to Mark's rendition of this story, had a mute and a deaf spirit. With his muteness, he could not speak. With his deafness, he could not hear. Here is a son in a very bad situation, and the father asking Jesus for his mercy. He said, I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. The disciples did what they could, but they could not heal this person. Verse 17. This is what Jesus said. O unbelieving and perverse generation. I happen to see the faith of this generation. I see this faith being very strong and being very bold. I see plans being laid this summer for our youth to come beside the poor and to show the love of Jesus to them down by the rescue mission. I see the love of Jesus through our youth to the elderly coming beside them at Vinabona Nursing Home. I see the desire of our youth to be with the people of our city at Baker Park handing out bottles of water. I see their desire to go to places like Philadelphia, Kensington, the poorest place in all of Philadelphia, to love people in Jesus' name at Urban Hope. I see them being part of Convoy of Hope when thousands will gather down at the fairgrounds and our church being part of that, loving people in the, in the name of Jesus. You see, I see faith 
in this generation. But what Jesus said there was, oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. This generation also is characterized by skepticism, by cynicism, by sarcasm, and also by unbelief. There is also a perversity here Jesus is drawing attention to. Perversity is to deviate from the standard, to willfully turn away from what is desired, to become perverse. Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? Now Jesus knew that his time upon this earth was soon to be over. How long shall I put up with you? It's kind of like a question a mother may say to her children, right? Like, how long shall I put up with you? It's like what a teacher would say to her class when they're out of control, like, how long shall I put up with you? Well, Jesus was able to feel the same emotions we feel. He was feeling here some vexation. But Jesus said, bring the boy here to me. In the midst of this man's distress, he said, bring the boy to me. The man in Mark's version of this said, Lord, have mercy upon me and help me if you can. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I love the honest admission of this man. Lord, I do believe, but Lord, please help my unbelief. And Jesus rebuked the spirit, and he came out of the boy, and he was healed from that moment. Jesus identified the deaf and dumb spirit. He identified the spirit of self-destruction, and Jesus cast that spirit out of the boy, and he was made well. He was healed from that moment. He had a deaf spirit. He couldn't hear. He had a dumb spirit. He couldn't speak. He had a destructive spirit. He was thrown off into the fire and the water. What was it like for the boy to become free? Now he could listen. It was as if the wax was taken out of his ears. It was as if the ringing in his ears had stopped. It was as if the cotton balls in his ears were removed. And now he could speak. His tongue was loosened. He got back his voice. He had been shut down and shut up, and now with his voice, he could speak up. The boy was no longer afraid of the fire, no longer afraid of the water, for he was whole. And the vision I have of this is of the father and son walking down the path, smiling and laughing that Jesus had healed the son. It was an amazing, amazing moment when Jesus healed the man. And the disciples came in private and said, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus said these words, because you have so little faith. In Mark's gospel, he said, because these kind come out by prayer. But I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible with you. Jesus said the reason why you couldn't drive the Spirit out was how small, little your faith is. You see, the mustard seed wasn't the largest seed in the garden. The mustard seed was the smallest of all the seeds in the garden. 
It doesn't take a large amount of faith. It takes a relatively small amount of faith in a very large God. And my prayer for you has been that God's size may increase in your eyes. You know, I was thinking about how big God is. He holds the waters in the hollow of his hand. You know, as I cut my hand, I can probably get two teaspoons of water into my hand. But God's hands are able to hold the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Indian and all the oceans of this earth in the hollow of his hands. Behold your God. How big is your God? He said, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move, and it will move. Jesus is not telling us to speak to God about the mountain. He's calling us to speak to the mountain. You see, Jesus was able to command, to use authoritative prayer. He commanded the wind and the waves to be quiet and still. He commanded the lepers to be clean. He touched the blind eyes and said, be opened. To the deaf ears, he said, be opened. To the paralyzed man, he said, get up. At the grave of Lazarus, he said, come forth. And to the demonic spirit, he said, come out. <laughs> the father said to Jesus, all authority has been given to you on heaven, in heaven and earth. And now Jesus has conveyed that authority also to us. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. Jesus commanded his disciples to go from village to village and to heal the sick and to cast out the demons. And he's calling us to live by a radical kind of faith, a mustard seed kind of faith, a kind of faith that believes that our God can move a mountain. So what lies at the foot of the mountain that is not moved? At the, heart, at the foot of the mountain lies unbelief. As I said, this generation has been characterized by cynicism, sarcasm, skepticism, and unbelief. It is easy enough for the unbelief of this world to pollute you. Unbelief is passed down from one generation to another, just as faith is passed down. But faith is trusting God, relying upon God, believing God. Do you believe in the bigness of God? Do you believe that God can move the mountain? Is there anybody here with just the mustard seed of faith that believes that God can move the mountain? God has already, in the worst of economic times, moved the mountain from $2.5 million to $1.25 million. Who believes that God can move this mountain and push it into the sea? You've got to speak to the unbelief. You've got to speak a word of faith unto yourself. Now, there's many things you can think, but the most important thing is how you think about how you think. If you think the truth, if you're thinking the truth that my God is bigger than the mountain, my God has made the mountain, my God can move the mountain, you have a mountain-moving kind of faith. Wouldn't it be awesome to see this church all get together and say, God can move this mountain into the sea. He can move the mountain of Braddock into the little hollow creek. <laughs> little metaphor there. God can move mountains. Do you have a mountain-moving kind of faith? 
The second thing that's at the foot of the mountain is our fear. What keeps us in the shadow of the mountain is our fear. You have to speak faith to your fear. Fear is being worried about what will happen next. Faith is trusting in God to supply. Fear is stressing out about not having enough. Faith is remembering God has always taken care of his people. I know the spirit of fear very well. I think the spirit I wrestle with the most is the spirit of fear. But my Bible tells me that God has not given me a spirit of fear. He's given me a spirit of He's given me a spirit of love. He's given me a spirit of power. He's given me a spirit of a sound mind. You see, when you have a spirit of power, that's a power over the enemy. You have to speak with a spirit of faith to the spirit of fear and command the spirit of fear to leave. Fear has no place here. We are in the presence of God. We're asking fear to leave. We're asking to banish unbelief. We're also asking God to remove apathy and indifference. (laughs) You know, we get busy with our lives. We get sort of occupied with all different kinds of things. And we miss the great miracle that God is doing. God is inviting us into faith. A mountain-moving faith that moves this mountain into Our Father in heaven, we confess to you our unbelief. We confess to you our fear. We confess to you our apathy and indifference. We confess to you, Lord, we're part of a faithless, perverse generation. We believe, Lord, that you are bigger than our mountain. We believe that you are a faithful God, that you are El Shaddai, Almighty God, that you are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. We confess, Lord, that you've been faithful to every generation. You're faithful also to us. And we speak this warning, Lord, a word of faith. And we speak to our fear, asking, Lord, you might banish fear from our hearts. We speak to our unbelief, asking you, Lord, to remove unbelief from our hearts. We speak to our apathy, and our indifference, asking, Lord, to remove them from the presence of the Lord. That together, Lord, we might see your hand move in a miraculous way. Thank you, Lord, for the word of faith. We've already heard that in this year, we're going to see you, Lord, do something beyond our imagination. Indeed, what we are asking for, for that last remainder to be taken from us. For us, Lord, to celebrate a year from now, having no longer a debt hanging over our heads. To give you glory, Lord, for the great God you are. Lord, as you stood upon that mountain, you were transfigured and transformed. And your face began to shine like the sun. And your garments began to radiate like the light. May the faces of your people shine. May your glory be seen in them as their lives are being transformed, as they're seeing your glory. God, we want to see your glory. We want to see you be glorified through our lives, 
glorified in our church, glorified, Lord, through our ministries, raising up a generation of fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, our prayer to you on this day is move the mountain. Is there a voice of agreement? Lord, move the mountain. Is there anybody who stands with me? Lord, move the mountain. We call out to you in the name of Jesus Christ to move the mountain and to move us to be in alignment with you, to be in attunement with you, Lord, for each one of us to give what we can, whether it means taking the nails, the polish off our nails, whether it means stopping from going to Starbucks, whatever sacrifice we would bring, Lord, we bring to you. Move the mountain, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to show you a clip now. It was taken from our DVD done a couple of years ago. It involves a prayer of my son, Josh. You may ask me, Pastor R, why is it that you really want to see this happen? Well, I want to see the faith of Grace Community Church grow. My own son, Josh, at the dinner table will often pray, may all the money for the church come in, may all the church get built. Ever since 2003, we entered into this faith campaign. He has prayed this prayer. It'd be beautiful to see his faith become realized and his prayer become answered because people were listening to God and entering by faith to do what God told them to do.